Before we get started, there's something I'm really excited to share with you. It's no secret that we think diversifying your income is incredibly important. One way that we do it is by investing in rental properties. We've done a ton of research, interviewed experts, and invested over $100,000 of our own money in income-producing rental properties. I am proud to announce that we're launching Rental Properties for Passive Investors. It's a course on exactly how you can passively invest in rental properties. Like our podcast, it's incredibly actionable and details exactly how we've both purchased and managed our rental properties. It also includes a year of investable, the analysis tool we use to make sure the rental properties we purchase are actually profitable. Finding the deal is half the battle. You need to know your numbers to make a profitable investment. We're running a pre-sale for $100 off. Head over to listenmoneymatters.com slash REI to learn more. That's listenmoneymatters.com slash REI for $100 off rental properties for passive investors. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Money is not the most important thing in the world. Love is. Fortunately, I love money. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, was that is that a quote from a movie or something? I feel like I've heard that before. I, I think so. I, in like true uh, asshole form, didn't even say who it was from. I just grabbed the quote, and I was like, Perfect. You were the worst kind of media person. Yeah. Didn't your English teacher in fourth grade ever tell you to cite your sources? Where's your bibliography? Hmm? I'll tell you what. (laughs) To to be fair, I will guarantee that I will not cite it in the show notes. Oh, okay. (laughs) That seems fair, I guess, in like a making it worse kind of way. Anyway, what are you drinking today, man? Uh, Today, uh, I'm just drinking a board meeting. I figured it was like uh, fitting, and it's like a coffee beer, so it's... It's good. It's an excellent name for a beer, right? Uh, for a podcast that has multiple people on it. Mm-hmm. I'm just drinking my caffeine-free tea, which is not actually tea, but uh, they love to call it tea. What is it? So it's pretty good. It's Fireside Vanilla Spice from uh, Celestial Seasonings, and I learned recently that the factory is actually in Boulder, Colorado. Oh so shit! So you can go to it and tour it and kind of like do whatever you want there. Tea things. Uh, buy tons of tea. All sorts of stuff like that. So Anna brought a bunch back, and I've just been drinking it all the time. It's really good. It's bagged, but it's really good. Uh, so, guys, today I th- think this is our first guest interview in quite a while. Yeah. Possibly of the year, I if think I'm not so. mistaken. Yeah. Uh, but today, guys, so we're going to talk about a topic that uh, I don't think we've really dug into that much on this show, which is the idea of diversifying your portfolio. We give it a lot of lip about- service. But I don't think we really... We, we give it, yeah. We give it a lot of lip service. And I think usually when we mention it, we mention it in the context of buying mutual funds or buying an array of funds that diversify um, as compared to owning a single stock. Right. But there's a lot more to diversification and there's a lot more that we don't know. So today we have a guest on the show. His name is Adam Graylist. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Uh, and he is a senior researcher at Betterment, which is one of our favorite companies. So, Adam, how's it going? Great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, excited to chat a little bit about this topic that's uh, near and dear to uh, my heart and certainly uh, many of the other people here at Betterment. Absolutely. So are you at Betterment's offices right now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in one of the uh, smaller uh, conference rooms. So hopefully uh, it will uh, 
it will provide some good acoustics. Gotcha. I well, was wondering if we great. would see you in the in the board game room. Uh, oh no, <laughs> yeah, I'm on a on a different floor. Um, uh, it's uh, much much more boring here. Um, uh, all the all the conference rooms in this floor are named after authors, um, and I am in conference room named Darwin. The Darwin oh. conference. Well, they should put a bunch of taxidermied animals on the wall then. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm looking over the corner, and there is uh, an Origin of Species book in the corner, and uh, a skeleton of an ape and a human. So uh, a little bit on theme here. That's pretty good. All you're showing us is a, a bunch of painted wood. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to have the skeleton in the background? <laughs> it's, uh, in the so Adam, tell us a little bit about like how you got involved with Betterment and, and what yeah, got you interested sure. in diversification. Sure, of course. So uh, looking at and ultimately joining Betterment was I, I, I was looking for uh, a company where I, I deeply aligned with the mission. Um, and to me, the mission of Betterment is to uh, use technology to uh, <clears throat> excuse me to use technology to offer uh, the best possible uh, wealth management, the kind that was previously only available to institutions or super high net worth individuals, and uh, take technology to make it uh, accessible to everyone at a low cost. So that was um, that was a mission that that I felt really aligned with, and my previous ten years of experience. Um, of uh, particularly thinking about problems from a systematic and technological point of view um, fit really well. Gotcha. So let's use Betterment actually as a jumping off point to talk about diversification. Because as anybody who has an account knows, or as anybody who's listened to this show for any amount of time knows, um, basically the way Betterment works is you set a risk tolerance slider, or I yeah. suppose a, a, you know, a slider that defines... Uh, what your priorities are, either growth or maybe a little bit more conservative approach. And then that's going to balance all of the funds you have available across different asset classes, across different uh, funds, all that kind of thing. Yep. So I suppose like that is a good example of diversification. We're not just pouring everybody's money into Tesla or into Apple. It's not only put into one fund, which has many, you know, hundreds or thousands of individual stocks or bonds within it, but across many different funds. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think there's a, a, a good uh, way that I think about it is, is sort of a hierarchy um, where the most risky uh, thing you can do is buy one individual stock because, mm -hmm. hey, listen, yeah, it might go up, but you're you're subjected to as much risk as possible. So not only um, what's broadly going on with the market, which might uh, 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 buffet the stock up and down, but also anything uh, particular to that sector and also that individual company. So even if uh, the market is going well and uh, that rising tide raises all boats, and even if, uh, say, the sector is going really well, but there's some sort of scandal that befalls the individual company uh you might you're you, there's just so many layers of risk that that you end up taking on um so you can improve on that by um uh owning a couple of stocks what does a couple of stocks do well um it doesn't protect me from necessarily sector risk or overall market risk but mm -hmm. It does protect me from uh, if one one company, you know, the CEO turns out to be a crook, it, you know, that's not really going to affect the other company. 
in in my portfolio at that point. So you, you're starting to see like the beginning of diversification at that point. Yeah. Is some so of this, this is like mercantile era style diversification where investors in England would, you know, put 10% of their gold on, you know, one of 10 ships. So that way, if one sinks, they only lose 10% of the gold. So yeah. it's like individual ship level diversification. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, moving kind of, kind of moving further along is, uh, instead of owning a few and, and maybe they're all in the same sector, uh, you can, you can own across multiple sectors. Uh, and at this point you're, you're getting closer to owning uh, a broader swath of the economy. So, so to go back to the ship analogy, this would be, um, you know, don't just send it by ship, but also send it by plane. Um, mm -hmm. also send it by submarine, uh, also, send it by ground to the extent possible. So now when you say sector, um, can you give me a couple of examples of sectors just yeah. to kind of solidify the picture? Sure, of course. So um, sectors are, are basically broad industries of the economy. So you can think about technology, uh, healthcare, financial companies. So kind of these, these very broad, um, very, very broad industries within um, uh, any economy. Okay. So if we have, you know, say, maybe this isn't a great example because I feel like an agricultural bad year would affect many different market sectors. But just for the sake of example, if you were invested in, you know, Deloitte and Monsanto and stuff like that, and we had a really bad year agriculturally, having money also in uh, the technology sector with Apple and Tesla and things like that, and having money in healthcare, that's going to uh, shield your portfolio somewhat from the losses in that one sector. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great example. I mean, what uh, crop yields are this year is probably not going to affect demand for semiconductors in any any material yeah. way. Um, so but I feel like it might, though. So I guess this is something I was worried about is it's something that's so fundamental to human life, like crop yields, mm -hmm. especially with uh, technology becoming more and more demanded in developing countries. I feel like a crop yield uh, fluctuation could actually affect demand for many different things, especially in countries where crop yields are, you know, uh, the, I guess a, a swing would be felt much more intensely. Yeah, no, that's that's a, uh, a good point. Uh, honestly, I haven't looked at the data to um, understand exactly how something like crop yields might might affect uh, other uh, sectors, even seemingly unrelated ones. Uh, I would yeah. certainly agree economies that particularly, uh, emerging market economies where, um, where commodities and agriculture are a bigger part of the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, that's going to have a much more, um, uh, systematic, uh, systemic effect on, on, on overall wealth levels in, in that country. So if a country, you know, uh, to use perhaps an exaggerated example, 50% of wealth is generated through agriculture, well, um, you know, that's going to have a knock-on effect uh, mm -hmm. for um, retail business, um, for example, or, or you know, buying so, iPhones. So I was going to say maybe to, to seize on that uh, example a little bit. I think like right now, 50% of like the money made isn't in agriculture, but a lot of people might feel that like tech or like the FANG stocks, like those are the ones that are making money. What's uh, FANG? Facebook, Apple, Google. That's right. Amazon. Something. What? What do you say? Netflix. Yes, Netflix. Netflix. Um, 
So, so you you might think, well, um, I I could definitely be invested in in healthcare, you know, and and maybe in utilities, but shouldn't I be overweighted in technology because it'd be stupid to miss all that upside? Yeah. Um, well, one as so if if you're uh, investing passively in uh, the entire U.S. economy as these sectors are growing, you end up, it becomes a larger percent of your portfolio and you do end up participating. Certainly not the same as if you have an overweight to, you know, five or six particularly well-known companies. Uh, I, I guess the, the one thing to, to say about that is it's particularly hard to forecast what the future growth uh, and future performance of these companies is going to be. Um, uh, and, and certainly just because they have done well in the past, um, is is not particularly instructive on what they might do mm. in the future. Pulling up one one example, you know, we might think about BlackBerry back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. That was certainly had an atmospheric rise at, or meteoric rise, and <clears throat> uh, uh, looked like it was an unstoppable force for communication, particularly in the business world. Um, and you know, things changed quite a bit, um, particularly with the introduction of the iPhone. So. Um, it's difficult to to predict, and and looking back on, on what previously happened is um, is usually not the most instructive thing to to be mm. looking at. So we talked about, I guess, the first two levels of diversification, yeah. and I think these are the easiest ones for people to take action on. We have company level diversification and sector level diversification. Um, so if you think about it from a stock perspective, it's very easy to buy stocks. For multiple companies to cover your bases on the first level and then to buy stocks across multiple different sectors or to get invested in a fund that does invest itself across multiple sectors like the vanguard total stock index that we talk about so much in this podcast um, but something that i didn't think about very often until very recently was the idea that uh the the overall performance of the economy is something where you can be where you can have a lack of diversification and this kind of blew my mind. I was listening to J. David Stein's podcast, uh, Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned that even a portfolio that is 40% bonds, so 60% stock, 40% bonds, uh, because of the volatility of stocks, 99% of your returns are going to be driven by the stock portion of that portfolio. Mm -hmm. So if you have a period of overall economic downturn, then the bonds in that portfolio are not really going to save it because of the volatility of the stocks. So I guess, how do you go about constructing a portfolio that um, that can weather a period of economic downturn or that maybe could even take advantage of a period of economic downturn? I would imagine there are industries out there that do tend to surge when inflation rises or when people are fearful, things like that. Yep, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a challenging problem. So uh, first, definitely stocks are more volatile than bonds. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why um, uh, that statement is true that, you know, even if you have 50% stock and 50% bonds, if stocks are three times more volatile, the, the overall volatility of your portfolio is going to be, uh, most of the contribution is going to come from stocks uh, over bonds. So, you know, how do you kind of uh, deal with this fact? Uh, you know, I would say there's a couple of things. Like, one, uh, 
we we've talked about diversification kind of going up to the individual country economy level. Uh, there is one more uh, level of diversification that you can eke out, which is going uh, outside of the U.S. and mm. uh, uh, investing not only in the U.S. broad U.S. economy, but also uh, international developed and emerging market economies. Uh, they tend to to move together to a certain certain extent, uh, but certainly not in lockstep. And anytime um, you you get um, funds or assets that are are uh, moving out of sync with one another, you you'll end up uh, uh, benefiting from some some diversification diversification benefit there. Mm-hmm. So that that's certainly um, one piece of it. The other piece is kind of what do you do through time as markets are evolving? And probably one of the best things to do is to um, periodically rebalance your portfolio. So as uh, imagine there's a a period of particular market turbulence and and stocks have gone gone down. Uh, If you look at your overall portfolio and say you're trying to maintain the 60 percent stock, 40 percent bond ratio, Stocks have gone down by a lot. Now they're, say, 55% of your portfolio and bonds are, are 45. So mm-hmm. to maintain that, that ratio, you're, you end up uh, buying more stocks. And if you think about how that, how that interaction works, as stocks are, are falling in value, they become a smaller part of your portfolio. Uh, right. This is when you're buying them. Uh, conversely, as the stock market does particularly well, it, they become overweight in your portfolio and you're selling them as after they've gone up. So, um, uh, you know, I like to think that the primary reason for rebalancing is to control your risk. That you've identified that 60/40 is the right risk for what you're trying to achieve, but it mm-hmm. also has this knock-on beneficial effect of uh, buying when uh, a certain asset class has gone down and selling after it's uh, increased. So buy low, sell high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has it has that nice property to it. Uh, uh, it's a very nice property of, of rebalancing beyond just the, the uh, simple risk control piece. Hmm. Okay. So 60-40, I mean, that's just an example that I heard on a podcast. Yeah. Um, given your financial goals, I mean, everyone listening to this podcast is going to have a different set of goals given their age, given what they want to do in life. How do you determine... Uh, both what should be in your portfolio and what the uh, different allocation percentages should be? Yeah. Uh, yeah, great question. It's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. And uh, one of the most straightforward ways to think about kind of sizing the amount of risk you you should be taking uh, is along two dimensions. One, uh, uh, investment term, when will I need this money? And then uh, what will it be used for? Uh, particularly, what will my liquidation look like? So, for example, uh, if this is for a major purchase like a house or a car or a boat, uh, I'm going to need this in five years. And at the end, I'm going to use all that money all at once uh, yeah. versus, say, a retirement goal where uh, I may need this money starting in 20 years, but then I'll be uh, spending down this money not in one shot but over uh, the subsequent 30 years. So both these, both these pieces of the, of the equation play into how much risk you should be taking. Um, and uh, 
you know, we've, we've built models to, uh, to kind of put you where you need to be on the risk spectrum, given those two dimensions. Uh, and it works intuitively, as you might expect, as your goal gets shorter, uh, you want more certainty around your risk. Um, if, you're con- if you're going to be spending all your money at uh, one time, like a, a major purchase goal, uh, it's also going to skew you towards towards less risk. Right. So I guess this is something that we should uh, maybe clar- or not clarify, but state again, because I think it's very important. Um, a lot of people who are around my age, early 20s, maybe even early 30s, you know, they're always thinking, I have all of these years until retirement, so it makes sense to take the risk now. Uh, and in many cases, that is true, but it is for that retirement goal. And like you say, if you've got a short-term purchase coming up, like a house or yeah. something like that, then you need to almost treat that money like a 55-year-old person would treat their retirement savings. Um, though it is actually a little different because you're planning on spending it all at once rather than dripping it out over 20 or 30 extra years. Yeah. So that, you, you don't want to, I guess you want to hedge, you want to hedge yourself against a potential economic downturn that is unfortunately timed with when you want to buy that house. That That's exactly right. And that's why we're a huge proponent of, uh, what you just described, we call goal-based investing. So, um, you, in the process of, of planning, um, how you envision um, your future to look. Um, does it involve a new car, a new house? Uh, does it involve kids? Do you want to um, uh, uh, send those kids to college and obviously retirement? Um, as these goals sort of materialize in your life, uh, each one necessitates a slightly different treatment for a slightly different um, uh, target amount of money. And mm-hmm. treating treating each of each one of these goals um, somewhat somewhat individually helps you to, as you had mentioned, ensure that you have uh, have the the money you need at the time that you need it. Yeah. So, so that, and I guess one point to add to this is, you know, if you do want your money to grow and you are young, then um, one thing that you have working in your favor is that uh, you don't realize losses until you sell. So if we do have a situation like 2008, 2009 happen again, and you can't afford to keep your money in the market for the next 20 years, um, assuming that things happen as they have happened for the last 90 years or so, instead of it being like an Armageddon scenario, you're probably going to realize all those losses again. Or not realize that you're probably going to make up for all those losses. Yes. Yeah. As uh, long as you can leave the money in the market. And, and think taking it one step further, if, if uh, you're practicing rebalancing along the way, you also were able to um, uh, move some of your bond holdings into stocks as as stocks were at um, rock bottom levels sort of helped. Yeah, that's right. So what were you going to say, Andrew? Um, I was just going to comment on the, the goal-based uh, piece. So I haven't mm-hmm. been able to have a Betterment account for a while. And um, may, maybe you can like affirm or, or I don't know. But uh, it, it is essentially what you're saying is it's not enough to create a Betterment account and perhaps just say money for later and put it all in, but essentially create sub buckets within your Betterment account that, that you guys have, have built an easy way to do based on a goal. And then I guess my question to you is like, so say I have the retirement goal and I have my saving for a home goal. Um, do I need to 
keep in my mind what the risk sliders are and the breakdown? Or can I just say, hey, Betterment, I need this money in five years and you'll recommend slash automatically slide my money accordingly? Yes. I, the short answer to that is yes to all of that. Uh, Sweet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So you can create multiple goals. Uh, we recommend based off of what you tell us about each one of those goals, what risk you should have, and then you can turn it on autopilot and we will uh, adjust your risk from where it should be at the start. And as time goes by, decrease risk as you get closer to um, to the uh, end of your investing term. So um, yeah, you can you know really put it on a- autopilot in a number of ways. One, on your overall risk for each goal. Uh, and how that evolves through time, um, de-risking as you get closer to your goal. Also, in terms of rebalancing, making sure that um, as the market is fluctuating, that um, we're keeping your portfolio risk in line with where it should be at that that point in time. Uh, and if it's in a taxable account, doing it in a way that is uh, tax aware, so not realizing short-term gains, um, uh, doing some other um, uh, tax strategies where it makes sense. Uh, for uh, individual customer situations, like for example, tax loss harvesting. So, um, before you came on, you had uh, you you um, had sent over an article that you had written uh, that I, I found fascinating, uh, particularly because of this uh, one concept you discussed called the efficient frontier. And when I thought of diversification. Um, my my layman thoughts were like, well, I'll have some real estate, I'll have some stocks, I'll have some bonds, um, you know, maybe VTI, uh, the the betterment or the, rather the Vanguard fund that is, you know, the the stock market is a great uh, pick. But but how do you really decide what is the best diversification? I think this concept defines that. Could you explain what the efficient frontier is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, to some people, this might be uh, a totally uh, new set of words and, and, and new concepts. So, you know, do my best to uh, uh, kind of shed some light on it. And it, it, it starts uh, with one pretty simple uh, concept, and that's that um, risk and return are related to mm-hmm. one another uh, and that uh Risk is bad and returns right. are good. So uh, there's a secondary concept in that as we uh, mix assets together that do not move entirely in lockstep, we're able to uh, reduce risk uh, without necessarily uh, adversely impacting return. So that set of facts allows us to create portfolio, mix assets together um, uh mix assets together in a way that uh, uh, keeps perhaps the return uh, equal, uh, but reduces the risk. So uh, you can imagine uh, a simple example where you have U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. If you start mixing those two together, they actually have less overall risk on that portfolio level uh, than uh, the simple average of, of the two things together. And this is because when uh, stocks go up, bonds might go down. So the overall portfolio uh, ends mm-hmm. up being less risky. And what what the what the efficient frontier is is it's the outer boundary of of how much uh, return you can get for any level of risk. So 
you can imagine um, uh, a, a, a moderately risky portfolio. Uh, you could construct a couple of different ones. One, for example, um, again, going back to our, our, our idea of individual stocks, you could have something that uh, displays moderate risk um, with, with one individual stock. Uh, if you start adding in more securities into it that, that don't um, move together, you end up decreasing the risk um, while not necessarily adversely impacting return. Um, and the efficient frontier is uh, the boundary of how much extra stuff you can add uh, before, uh, before you've kind of reached your limit. So it's the outer boundary of, of uh, uh, most return you can get for any given level of risk. So one thing that I think is incredibly instructive that that is unfortunately unable to be conveyed on the podcast is this image that you included. And so it has uh, essentially a line and it's like not like a one, like a X equals one, like a whatever, but it's a straight line of, of the maximum amount of return you can get for really for the risk. And then um, there's a bunch of like gray dots in there of all the possible portfolios. And so this is like me imagining, and and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you essentially take all of the potential components that could be in a portfolio and just run enormous back tests to determine like which ones you would add in at, I don't know, 60% stock, 40% bond to get the highest return at the lowest risk. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, this uh, this image is uh, 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 very helpful for explaining this concept. That's a little bit more difficult to do in words. Um, the amount of times I end up drawing this this simple efficient frontier chart um, in my work life, you know, it's, it seems like at least once a week. Um, thinking about perhaps getting it tattooed onto part of my body it would take <laughs> everybody some time. Um, understand diversification. Take a look at my chest. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's exactly right. Is uh, you can imagine uh, taking uh, you know all all of, all of the stocks in the in the U.S. and uh, 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 mixing them together every which way possible um, and. Uh, for each each portfolio that you end up creating, uh, understanding how much return it had and how risky that portfolio was, and just plotting all those points. And what ends up happening is you find at a certain point that uh, uh, for any given level of risk, uh, there are no there are no points higher up. There's there's no uh, higher return that you can achieve. And uh, uh, if you move across risk levels, uh, you end up seeing. Like it has this kind of uh, curving shape to it, where um, as you go into higher levels of risk, you get more return, but at a, at a at a decreasing rate. So that's that's kind of mm. kind of what that that chart looks like. Um, so and, it's law of diminishing returns based yeah. on the the risk level rising. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Um, and there's some some kind of interesting. Uh, um, thought as to why why that is um that i'm happy to go into as well please um, but uh yeah like you know the 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 biggest thing to think about if you can imagine all all these all these points all these uh uh, uh portfo- possible portfolios 
that eventually there's just some line that it, they can't cross. There's, there's, mm. you just can't create a portfolio that uh, is any better than, than, uh, than this one created um, mm -hmm. at each level of risk. And that outer boundary is called the efficient frontier. So you generally want your portfolio that you're invested in to be on or very close to that efficient frontier. Because what it means is mm -hmm. that you're getting the most amount of return uh, for the level of risk that you're taking. Right. So you you have um, all this past data for all of these funds, stocks, et cetera, and, and you determine uh, the betterment portfolios as per whatever the allocation, like, you know, 60, 40 stock based on this. And I guess my, my first thought is you run this, you run this test and these are the results. But, uh, in three months, six months from now, it's probably going to be different just because things are weird and whatever. So how do, do I imagine the betterment portfolios change as a result of that? And then I guess, how do you do that? How often does that happen? Is there a cost? Because you're obviously selling some of the things in my portfolio and buying other ones. Yeah, this is a great question. I'm glad that you brought it up because um, in uh, the way that we were just explaining um, efficient frontiers. Uh, 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 it's like yesterday's efficient frontier. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so what we do at Betterment uh, I guess the, the one thing taking one step back is um, on the efficient frontier, the thing that we really, so we have uh, risk on one hand and returns on the other. The thing that we really care about our, about our, for our portfolio is the future risk of the portfolio and the future returns. Mm. So uh, you can certainly plot what happened in the past. Um, but what you really care about is what we expect the future returns of each of these assets and each of these portfolios to be and the future uh, uh, risk of these portfolios. So uh, to do that, we have a separate process that is actually coming up with uh, our expectation of what we think each asset, what each asset class's uh, future return will be uh, and what we expect its, its future risk to be. And then uh, 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 combining those together into portfolios and seeing what, what those look like. So um, it's not uh, based entirely on backwards looking data, um, which, which means that if, uh, you know, if, if something changes over the course of a month or two, um, our, our entire efficient frontier doesn't shift around. Um, and the way we go about, so, so the main point that's important to think about is, is the efficient frontier cares about, future returns and future risk. And so uh, we're doing our best to, uh, to plot where we think portfolios will be on, this, on, this, uh, on these two dimensions. Um, the way that we go about thinking about future risk is uh, pretty interesting. We use uh, a process called Black Litterman, which is a couple of fancy words, but basically what it means is we take uh, the global uh, allocation of stock and bonds. So the global market cap of stock and bonds. So we understand how every investor uh, in the world has kind of where they've put their chips, right? You know, mm -hmm. each investor is uh, trying to be smart and uh, uh, getting information, uh, coming up with their own 
uh, understanding of of what might be a valuable investment and you know putting their chips where they may be around the 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 world of global investments. So seeing that, um, we now know the um, the weights to the global market cap portfolio. We know that. Uh, about 60% of all assets are in, are in bonds and around 40% are in stocks. And we know that um, around 40-odd percent of stock assets are in the U.S. and 60% outside the U.S. So uh, once we know these weights uh, and we can also measure um, the risk to all these asset classes, um, risk tends to be a bit more stable and you can look at how risky it was historically and it tends to be a fairly good predictor of what risk will, will be in the future. Once we, once we know um, the weights of this global portfolio and the risk associated with each of those assets, we can then back out what the implied uh, expected return is for each one of these asset classes. Mm. Uh, if you think about a traditional portfolio, you have you have an idea of how risky it is and you have an idea of uh, what the returns are. And from those two things, you can um, you can come up with some weights of how much you think you should have of each one of these things. Well, if we have weights and risk, we can just uh, reverse the process and we can actually back out the global implied expected return for each asset class. So um, it's basically telling us what the the sum of of all the investors who who are putting money to work, what they think um, the the uh, implied uh, future return of this asset class is. So that's that's what roots mm-hmm. our efficient frontier, which tends to be uh, quite a bit more stable because it's rooted in uh, uh, global market caps, which just don't move around the same amount. So you can you can use the allocations of all investors to extrapolate what they expect to happen on a global aggregate scale. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as we know, markets fluctuate based on expectations and perceptions uh, just as much as they do on, you know, actual things happening in reality. So that makes sense. Uh, Did you say that 40% of all stocks, all 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 stock investing is in the U.S. globally? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I have to have to double check on the exact number, but it's it's around that. So almost half of the world's invested or invest dollars invested in stocks are invested in U.S. companies. Yeah, that is higher than I would have expected. I mean, I know the U.S. economy is gigantic, but I would not have expected that forty percent of all stocks were, uh, or I guess all stock dollars were invested in U.S. companies. Um, so. I guess to bring things down to maybe a little bit more actionable level, something that uh, the average person could maybe grab onto a little better. Um, I read about something called the all weather portfolio. Yep. Have you heard about that? Yep. So I guess number one, can you explain what the all weather portfolio is? Because I think that's something that would be feasible to construct for the average person if they wanted to. And then I guess the second question in my head, which kind of piggybacks off of that is, what is the benefit, if any, to constructing an all-weather portfolio versus constructing a very conservative portfolio that's just less volatile on the whole? Right. So when you say all-weather, I take it you mean uh, in reference to Bridgewater's all-weather portfolio, which is a risk yeah. portfolio? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So broadly, um, the all-weather fund is an implementation of a uh, strategy called risk parity. 
And <clears throat> risk parity uh, seeks to balance the risk contribution from each asset in the portfolio. So we had talked about a little bit earlier uh, that even if you have a 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio, because stocks are, say, three times more volatile, uh, if you look at the volatility uh, contribution of stocks versus bonds, it's going to be uh, overwhelmed by, by, the, by the stock piece versus mm-hmm. bonds. So that's the, that's the underlying um, idea behind uh, a risk parity portfolio is that each, each individual uh, asset class contributes an equal, equal amount in risk terms, not in dollar terms. Uh, functionally, what this means is you have portfolios with a lot of bonds in them relative to the amount of stock that's in them. Um, okay. So, uh, it like again using our three to one example, uh, if we if we wanted to have equal contribution from both, we're going to have uh, three times more bonds than we do stocks. So it's going to be a, a very low allocation of stocks, very high allocation to bonds. Mm-hmm. So the and and this ends up being a pretty um, efficient portfolio, um, high sharp ratio. Um, so by efficient, I mean uh, how much return do you expect to get for each uh, each additional amount of risk that you're taking? Uh, again, uh, uh, going back to this idea of the efficient frontier that we had traced out in our minds, uh, and we know that this thing is uh, is not going up at a at a 45 degree angle. It's kind of uh, 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 going up at a, a decreasing rate. If we're down in the lower end of of risk, we're we're um, you know getting a, a lot more. A return per unit of risk. Um, so, so these tend to be pretty efficient portfolios. The problem, um, and I'm not sure who to attribute this quote to, but there's a famous quote that's, uh, you can't eat risk-adjusted return, which is to say, um, sure, great, my portfolio um, is returning 2% uh, off of very little risk. That's great, but 2% return is still 2% return. So mm, right. even though achieving this efficiently, uh, it is not uh, hitting, it's not growing my money enough for me to reach my retirement goals, say. So, yeah. And that's what I was wondering about, because I feel like I could just put all my money in treasury bonds and make 2% without having to worry about, you know, gold allocation versus treasuries versus stocks and all that kind of stuff. Is the result going to be the same? It's going to be different. Um, uh, The idea is that this is... uh, a portfolio of already risky assets. So um, uh, this is going outside of treasuries and into assets that are riskier and then trying to balance those risks. Because right. right, you could invest in something, treasuries are generally considered risk-free um, uh, as long as you're holding them to term. So uh, this is uh, kind of a framework we're thinking about once we're, we're taking a step off off the, off the ledge into risky assets in the hopes of getting more returns. So um, okay. we're thinking about, um, uh, uh, corporate bonds and, um, perhaps real estate, perhaps commodities, stocks, um, maybe longer duration treasuries as well. Um, these, these types of assets. So, um, but yeah, the, and, and the risk parity portfolios tend to be very, very efficient, um, uh, good risk adjusted return, but the return itself is small. Um, so the solution to this problem, again, so this is small, 
the problem being the return is not high enough for me to uh, reach any of my financial goals. Um, so the solution for risk parity products is they have to introduce leverage at this point. Mm. Um, so they take this very uh, efficient portfolio that's yielding, let's say, um, 3%, 3.5%, and they, they lever it um, two times. So now they're getting 6 or 7%, and now we're in the ballpark of, of a portfolio that's um, uh, returning something that, that's a healthy return that, that, that can actually be meaningful. Um, can you just briefly explain exactly how that leverage works? For I mean, yeah, I have, we have we've done an entire episode on leverage, and I still sometimes don't exactly know what leverage means. Yeah, um, it's probably perhaps uh, becomes increasingly confusing when there's a number of different ways to get leverage. So um, start with the perhaps the simplest to understand, which is uh, margin, uh, which is simply borrowing money. Uh, to buy something else. So this is literally um, borrowing money from a brokerage at some some interest rate, say one and a half percent or two percent, uh, and they've literally extended you a loan. Uh, so I had a hundred dollars uh, with my brokerage, and then I've also asked them for an additional hundred dollars, and they say, "Fine, here's a hundred dollars, and you're going to owe us two percent a year or two dollars um, a year on that at hundred go forth and do what you want with it. So now my my uh, purchasing power has doubled. I now have $200 to deploy into, into the market um, with, in the hopes, obviously, that the things that I buy go up in value. Um, say uh, I'm uh, particularly lucky and my investment goes up, um, goes up by uh, 50%. Uh, I've, I've invested $200. I now have $300. I sell it. Uh, I return my $100, $102 back to the brokerage, and now I'm left with, with $200 off my original $100 investment. So um, I have 100% return on my, on, on my own capital, my $100 investment. because I. So I, you, you put $100 in to begin with, yep. and then you borrowed another 100 Yep. Okay, so basically it's, it's money that you don't own that's been sort of extended to you at a rate of interest that you're using to uh, get more bang for your buck than you could with your own assets. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course the risk here is in, instead of, uh, this, uh, portfolio that, that I've, that I've purchased going up by 50%, what happens if it goes down by 50%? Uh, you're eating into your original principal to pay back the loan. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, this is, this is the, the risk to, to it. Uh, in fact, you can end up uh, losing more money than you actually have, right? The, the portfolio mm. could go from $200 in value to $50 in value, um, in which case you're, you're in a whole heap of trouble because you can't. So if you, if you leverage over 100%, now like you're, you're inviting the possibility that you could uh, have losses that you couldn't pay back. Exactly. Uh, and okay. Yeah, so that's a risk. Um, it's one that is uh, very stringently controlled by the uh, lender of the money uh, mm -hmm. because uh, the price of your portfolio is evolving through time and is unlikely to go from $200 to $50 um, instantaneously. Right. Um, they are going to monitor the value of your portfolio. And uh, as that gets below a certain level, they're going to say, hey, 
we're, we're not feeling comfortable about this. Um, we're worried you're going to be able to pay us back. So you either need to give us more money um, as kind of collateral uh, or we're going to start selling the selling these securities um, to get back because we want. So they have the right to sell your securities. Yeah. With their leveraged money. Exactly. So they you know, they uh, they're 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 going to make sure that they get their hundred dollars back. So they're yeah. keeping keeping an eye on the, the portfolio value. So, yeah, broadly, you can think of leverage as borrowing money to increase your your spending power. Um, gotcha. okay. And if if. Uh, if your investment goes up, this is great. You've just, um, you know, uh, increased your return by more than you could have with your um, with the actual money that you had. And then there's the risk that um, you could lose quite a bit more. Um, so broadly, that's the way to think about leverage. Um, margin is one way to get it. Uh, functionally, in a lot of uh, these risk parity funds, they tend to use. Um, different ways to get leverage, either by using uh, futures contracts or by using other derivatives, uh, which uh, essentially has a, a, a similar underlying economics, but the money is not mechanically changing hands in the exact same way. Uh, it has yeah. more the underlying nature of these contracts. But fundamentally, like um, in thinking about it in your head, uh, you can think about it in a fairly similar way. Um, okay. And maybe someday we could do a whole deep dive episode uh, episode on these these parity um, funds. But I was just curious on you know what, what's the difference fundamentally between them and just a very conservative fund. So I guess to really simplify it, correct me if I'm wrong here. A fund like the All Weather portfolio, um, during good times, you've got all these different asset classes that don't really move in lockstep, but if it was good times, then they're going to return better than a really conservative portfolio would. Correct. Is that kind of the idea here? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly true. Cause like generally when we think good times, we think stocks going up mm, and right. in general, a risk parity portfolio might have, you know, 20% of its risk allocated towards stocks and 25 mm -hmm. towards commodities and 25 towards bonds and 25 towards other things. So um, the idea is for, for it to um, kind of in a good market to not outperform and in a bad market to not underperform um, mm -hmm. for it to kind of, um, kind of, uh, you know, trudge, trudge ahead <laughs> Uh, yeah. so, to speak. so what, how it could uh, compare to a, a conservative traditional portfolio? I guess I would say it depends on how much stock was in your traditional portfolio. If you called a traditional portfolio a 60-40 stock bond mix that in a quote-unquote good market one where equities are doing well, uh, a priori I would expect that portfolio to do better than a, a, a risk parity fund. Um, mm. uh, I, would ex I would expect the risk parity fund uh, again, like this is just kind of thinking very broadly to perform right. better than the 60-40 portfolio um, in a bad market, um, just simply gotcha. because it's holding holding less equity risk. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. you know, perform doesn't let you know uh, lower highs, lower uh, higher lows. I guess would be one way to think about it. Okay.
Maybe we should just get Ray Dalio on the podcast <laughs> to explain it. Definitely. If you could pull that one off. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty incredible. Uh, but Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that I at least have a much better understanding of diversification. And even if people don't get super into all the stuff about Efficient Frontier, um, I think you providing that illustration of the different levels of diversification across companies, sectors, uh, economies and then countries is very useful when thinking about constructing a portfolio. And obviously people can, uh, you know, dial it automatically and not think about it if they are using Betterment. But if they are using a more DIY approach, I think this is going to be very helpful, especially as they start thinking about um, shorter term goals in the future. Yeah. Or getting older. And we'll include a link to this amazing article that uh, Adam put together and uh, perhaps some few tangential stuff on the site. Like uh, I remember um, Dan created this awesome interactive graph between uh, international allocations and U.S. only. It's kind of like a visualization of the Betterment stock slider um, or allocation slider. All that good stuff if you just like slider faces one direction yeah yeah left right up i don't know (laughs) (laughs) however you bring show notes up on your app yeah Yeah. so adam thanks again for coming to the show man and if you have anything else parting thoughts go ahead yeah so one other one other uh topic that kind of uh, really quickly that uh is related to uh risk parity and leverage and the efficient frontier um so I kind of mentioned before that as you go up uh, in the risk level, uh, uh, the efficient frontier kind of starts to bend, still going up, but it kind of it kind of flattens out. And yeah. and uh, what's the reason for that? Uh, and the reason for that is is similar to what's going on with risk parity, and it, it basically comes down to leverage aversion. So um, ideally, if I if I don't care uh, about taking leverage risk, which means I could like lose everything, right? That's the risk of leverage. I, I borrow $100 and my portfolio now worth $200 goes down by 50%. I lose everything. Mm. Uh, uh, if you don't want to take leverage, either because you are worried about that or you just have some structural mandate that says that you can't, say you're an, uh, 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 a uh, nonprofit company, and that's part of your investment policies that you can't take leverage. All of these things mean the only way for you to get return is by moving into riskier assets. And because people, there's a lot of demand for just absolute return, just your your actual level of return. That means there's more people um, buying these assets than um, than they would be buying the the more risk efficient assets that are are lower in risk. Uh, and because more people are buying them, the price the price goes up, which means the return is lower. The return so, goes down. Okay. So the return goes down. So this means that if I want to get twenty percent risk, I have to take. Uh, sorry, if I want to get twenty percent return, um, and I don't want to use leverage, I have to take a lot more risk than um, finding yeah. a ten percent return portfolio and leveraging it up. Mm. Um, so this is the reason why uh, the efficient frontier flattens out as you get into higher levels of risk. Uh, it's also the reason why you why the risk parity portfolio, um, you need to use leverage. It's, it's a very risk efficient portfolio, but you have such a small amount 
of uh, you have such a, a small amount of returns that you have to use leverage to get to anywhere where you might care about the level of return. So this is uh, one difference between risk parity and uh, a non-risk parity portfolio. Like if you do not want to use leverage, you have no choice but to be on the efficient frontier and taking a, a bit more a bit more risk um, uh, to get that same level of return. So and that because, makes sense. So yeah, because there's an overall aversion to leverage one one because of the the risk uh associated with it and two because of any structural constraints that might exist in how you're even allowed to invest um you end up seeing more people buying higher higher risk stuff uh pushes up the price and uh decreases mm. the future return supply and demand curves <laughs> and we are back to economics 101 freshman year of college <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that makes sense uh, again, Adam, thank you for explaining that. Um, I'm sure there are extra things we could go into in a future episode. So for anybody listening to this, our email address, as always, is listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. Send us your questions. If you have uh, extra details you'd like to learn about diversification or these risk parity portfolios or anything like that, let us know. Uh, your questions inform future episodes, and they're very helpful to us. So thank you for you that. Um Adam, where should people go if they want to connect with you or read more of your work? Yeah, uh, they can uh, check check me out at betterment.com. Um, if they go to the Resource Center, they can see articles that I've written, uh, articles that uh, my very talented colleagues have written, and learn a lot more about how we think about investing. Um, there's uh, uh, contact info there as well to get in hold, a hold of, of myself or uh, uh, anyone else. Cool. All righty. Well, we'll have links to those articles in the show notes, along with lots of extra details, um, possibly some of those graphs we talked about. If not, we'll have links to them over on Betterment's website. So check out the show notes if you want to get more details about this topic, listenmoneymatters.com slash show. And that's where you can find all the show notes for all of our past episodes. As always, you can look in your podcast app as well, but uh, the website's a great resource to look at. It has lots of other articles on it as well. So thanks for listening. Uh, last but not least, you can always, as always, check out our toolbox of resources for budgeting your money and investing more effectively over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. And we will see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Later, man. Please tell your friends about this show. <laughs> Thank you.